0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 247 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Igenics, an interview with Stuti Vora. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. So most of us have heard about Igenics testing before, but we don't realize how powerful and how advanced their testing can be in helping us overcome obstacles when healing Lyme disease and co-infections. Stuti talks to us about all kinds of testing methodologies that have helped patients overcome emotional and physical barriers while healing from Lyme disease. She also gives you specific details and how to work through the requisition form to identify what tests are right for you, either in partnership with a doctor or the customer support team. So without further ado, Stuti Vora and Igenix. Hey Stuti Vora from Igenix Labs and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast.
1: Thank you, thanks for having me, I'm excited.
2: And we're really excited to have you, too. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to get somebody from Igenics onto this podcast because we've heard over and over again that your lab is the best lab for tick testing and Lyme disease. And it, it's really time for the three of us to get together and talk about why the community feels that way. Before we go there, I'd like you to first introduce yourself personally to our community. Talk to us about uh, who you are and what your title is over at Igenics and uh, what's your background.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, you make us sound like a leopard, really elusive, but we're not. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I'm um, So I've been here for around eight years, and I started off in the customer service department. And, and it was customer service and billing, so I got to know a lot of different functions. And I'm now a customer service supervisor, and I work with the marketing group and the sales group. So Um, We're a smallish lab, so everybody wears a lot of hats and our main function is to make sure our customers are happy, that we can um, at least service the Lyme community in a way that will bring them some peace or, you know, um, great testing, anything to make them feel heard, feel better and, you know, improve their lives overall.
2: So, Stu, talk to us about Igenix and specifically about Dr. Harris, the founder of Igenix.
1: Yes, of course. So, Igenix um, was founded around 30 years ago, just over 30. I think we're celebrating our 30 anniversary this, um, this year. And um, it was Dr. Harris, Dr. Nick Harris, who started the, who started the company. So, Igenix originally was part of VMware... And they used to do allergy testing. And then in 1991, he, um, he transformed it into testing for tick-borne diseases, um, specifically Lyme disease at the beginning. And um, then they brought on Dr. Shah and Dr. Shah introduced more diseases to be for eugenics to test for that are carried by ticks as well. And since then it's just been evolving into what we are today. <laughs>
2: So talk to us about Dr. Shah, because Matt and I, at some point, would really be excited to introduce ourselves and our community to Dr. Shah. But since we since we don't have the opportunity to do that just yet, can you talk to us about Dr. Shah? Because she is considered one of the stars in the community.
1: Yeah, of course. So her passion is science and research and especially genetics. And so one thing she she comes from Kenya. So do I. And she was brought over from the East Coast. She used to be um, a researcher at Harvard and uh, she came over to Igenics and has been, just started off as a, as in the, in the laboratory, became the lab director and is now the owner of Igenics and still the lab director as well. And she's constantly looking at improving our testing, seeing how we can do better, how, our testing can look for more, detect more, just help people, help doctors diagnose their patients correctly.
2: Now Sudi, I I shared with you offline that, um, and I guess we started to talk about it during the introduction that we've interviewed about 250 people who have chronic Lyme disease and almost to the person your lab is considered the, the standard for Lyme disease testing. Almost everyone has said to us that if they, had to choose a lab to be tested for, again, they would choose Igenix. So talk to us about why the community has come to the conclusion that the state-of-the-art mm-hmm. testing comes from your lab at Igenix.
1: Wow. First of all, we're very grateful for that feedback. And um, it's it's amazing. It's amazing to hear. Uh, I believe it's because we're not just following outdated CDC guidelines. So The CDC hasn't actually improved on their guidelines since 1994 for testing. And a lot of mainstream labs use those guidelines and two-tier testing. Whereas where we develop our tests in-house, we have a really strong R&D department. And basically, again, what Dr. Shaw is bringing to the company is constantly evolving our technologies, making sure, so one of the examples is, how we went from the Western blot, where we were already using um, two antigens to develop our Western blot versus mainstream labs who use one, we're using both Borrelia burgdorferi B31 and 297. And from that, we now have our immunoblots, which are unrivaled, it's like doing seven or eight Western blots in one test. And you're looking at a variety of species of Borrelia that cause Lyme disease or tick-borne relapsing fever or Bartonella because we offer immunobots for all those three um, diseases. And on, um, it's more sensitive, more specific. They're very clean blots because you're using recombinant proteins. And so there's not a lot of background noise and they're easy to read.
2: So I'd like to talk to you about the different testing tools you have available to the community. And uh, I did also share with you offline that a couple of years ago, I was bitten by a tick. I went to my doctor's office and I did not have a positive experience. And I I don't want to belabor that. But one of the things that happened during the course of my interaction with my doctor's office is that I gave them a tick and I said, to the doctor's office, hey, is, there, is, is this tick that I found biting me something that you can test? Is this something that you know that will be significant in you treating me? And the tick was handed back to me and, and I was told that they didn't need to do anything with that tick. So um, does Igenix offer any testing for ticks if folks are lucky enough to hold on to the tick that they found uh, biting them? So
1: if you are fortunate enough to, um, to have the tick, <clears throat> A lot of people get bitten and never knew they were bitten and don't feel it. But if you're able to save that tick, that's one of the best ways um, to get started. And it's also one of the most affordable ways because you can get the tick tested. We offer tick testing for Lyme, Bartonella, Babesia, Ehrlichia, plasma, Rickettsia, and also tick-borne relapsing fever. So all the diseases that we test were for, for tick-borne uh, diseases. And <clears throat> each test is around $75 but it's so worth it because it's a PCR. And so you're looking at the DNA of the bacteria, a parasite and the whole tick. And you're getting a very good answer as to whether the tick was carrying the disease or not. And so that helps you also figure out what your next steps are. And you don't need a doctor to order a tick test. You only need it to order a test on a human on a human sample. And so if you do find a tick, it's worth sending in. It's also important to know not to just test it for Lyme disease. We do hold the ticks for two months. So if um, payment options are a problem, then you can always, you know, um, add on a test later. You don't have to, you don't have to order everything at once. And so, so your story is really familiar, um, not just the, I guess in a way, testing the tick part, a lot of doctors do say yes. So I'm surprised you had such a negative experience there, unfortunately, but it's even worse when people wanna get themselves tested. They're made to feel like they're going crazy. And that just, you know, there's already a lot of mental health problems and mental illness associated with tick-borne diseases. And then this just adds an emotional aspect to it and makes you feel worse instead of getting the support that's needed.
2: So let me tell you how my experience went downhill from there. Um, yeah. the, uh, the, te- the tick <laughs> that had bitten me, which I did not know at the time, I didn't know anything about ticks or tick species, but the tick that had bitten me was a lone star tick. And mm. I now know that lone star ticks do not harbor Lyme disease. But one of the things that I was offered was a Lyme disease test. So I was told after you know after uh, I went back six weeks later that uh, that I could then take a Lyme disease test and they and they gave me a Lyme disease test and then uh, and then I was called a couple of weeks later and told I didn't have Lyme. Now of course now I'm looking back at it like holy cow this is just crazy and ridiculous and incompetent. But at the time I thought I was being treated you know appropriately at least from a testing standpoint. So if I wanted to help. My doctors in the future, with how to appropriately test me after I went and sent my tick to Igenix to have the tick tested. What are the three options of testing that are available um, to folks in the community from Igenix? I understand that you have a blood test, a urine test, and then a miscellaneous test.
1: So those are um, so those are the type of the type of sample that you can test. It's not exactly we can have PCR tests available for all three, for example. Um, So really most of our tests require blood. Uh, It just depends on the doctor and where they think the the bacteria or parasite might be and what what sample type they wanna test. A lot of doctors like to do an antibiotic challenge and follow up with a urine test, but initially start with a blood test. So um, most people will do blood testing initially. And we have several different types of tests for just, you know, several different types of tests. So the tests include both indirect and direct tests. Direct tests are looking at the bacteria or parasite in in the blood itself, whereas indirect tests are looking at your antibodies. So immunoblots, for example, or Western blots are indirect tests because they want to see how your body is reacting to infection, whereas PCRs, and everyone's getting really familiar with PCRs right now because of COVID, are direct tests because they're looking at the DNA of the bacteria in your bloodstream, so, and seeing just, you know, whether it's there or not. One isn't necessarily better than the other. Um, It's usually recommended to do a combination, so you're covering a wide spectrum.
2: So they're just different tools to give you information about what may be going on uh, and give you a higher degree of accuracy of, of locating the pathogens that you may be harboring. Exactly. So now your blood testing. How many different uh, pathogens do you test for at Igenics with a blood collection kit?
1: So every disease that we test for, we offer a blood test. So that would be we consider Lyme and tick-borne relapsing fever together as borreliosis. It's really prudent when you're testing for Lyme to consider tick-borne relapsing fever. The symptoms are almost the same, and so you don't know what you know what <laughs> what you what you have, especially because symptoms in general for tick-borne diseases are non-specific. So we test for Lyme, tick-borne relapsing fever, babesia, bartonella, erlichia plasma and rickettsia. And rickettsia covers Rocky Mountain spotted fever.
2: So now Suni, if if I were bitten by a tick and I wanted to have an Igenix blood test and I went Mm -hmm. to my doctor, would I be able to purchase the kit from Igenix directly and then bring it to my doctor's office? Or would my doctor's office have to purchase it directly from Igenix?
1: So you can go about it either way. Um, If you have found a doctor and they want you to do most of the legwork, uh, because that is very common in this in this community and it happens, um, you can definitely uh, pay a deposit for the kit and we'll send you one. It's a $20 deposit. Once you receive it and your doctor signed off on the paperwork, helped you choose a test and you've had your sample drawn and sent back to us, we'll credit you that $20 against the price of the testing. The other thing is the doctor can also order the kit and have you come in. There's no fee for the doctor. The only reason we have a deposit is to avoid wastage of kits. That's yeah.
2: So now let's talk about the, the urine collection kit. Uh, we, we were told, for example, by Dr. Casey Kelly that she likes urine tests, especially for children who are sometimes adverse to uh, giving blood. Talk to us about the urine uh, kit and when the urine kit appears to be used most often at Igenix.
1: So our blood testing is definitely around 90% of our testing. But so there are some doctors who like to do um, like to have urine testing done on their patients. And specifically, it's because they can do antibiotic challenges. We don't have any recommendations on those since we're the lab. We do leave it up to the doctor and what they want to administer. And so they they believe that they can draw out the bacteria into the urine. And so by doing the antibiotic challenges, they wanna see what will happen when they test the urine. It also is a very good um, testing method for children, especially babies, because you can squeeze the urine out of the diaper.
2: So what what, what pathogens do you test for in a urine test and are there, a fewer number of pathogens or a greater number of pathogens uh, when you're testing with the urine kit, uh, by contrast, with testing in the blood collection kit.
1: Um, so we definitely do like fewer, t- uh, less testing for uh, urine. Um, I would say Lyme disease is the most popular urine test we have our line, uh urine pa- urine panel we do tick-borne relaxing fever testing as well for urine and um recently we've started offering um the co-infections as well and that's in a panel so we we have a panel um it's the tick-borne disease panel number seven and that's basically a full pcr urine panel
2: okay And it's over
1: all the diseases.
2: So I understand that you're testing both for Bartonella, Babesia, Rickettsia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichia with your urine test. Correct. So let's talk about the last uh, collection uh, tool you have, and that is the miscellaneous collection kit. And when when are folks uh, using the miscellaneous collection kit?
1: So the miscellaneous kit is really when you want to test a sample that's not blood or urine. Basically, tissue, cerebral spinal fluid, uh, placenta, breast milk. So it's um, cord, uh, well, cord blood, you can use the blood kit, but there is a belief out there that um, the disease can transmit in vitro. And so patients do like to test the cord blood or the placenta just to see if it's passed on to the baby.
2: I, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest, not just not just a belief, but a lot of evidence yes. to suggest that, <laughs> that is the case. And we we did a, a comprehensive interview with uh Dr. McDonald, who I think has certainly convinced most people in the community that the that the evidence is undeniable that it that Lyme is a congenital disease. But that's a probably a conversation for another day, yeah. uh, student. Personally,
1: personally, I am a strong believer that yes, it is. But- Obviously, it's more controversial, as everything with Lyme is, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, that is the case. So now, the last uh, area I'd like to explore with you before Matt gets to finally, very anxiously, uh, <laughs> ask you some questions, is I wanted to talk to you about the, uh, the test re- uh, requisition form. Um, I downloaded that from your website. And what I was looking for was what test I would want to discuss with my doctor, after getting bitten by the tick a couple of years ago. Um, and um, quite frankly, I found the, the, the form to be overwhelming. And I realized, that, I realized that the form is a form for a doctor, not for a patient, and, and that you have a, a number of comprehensive tests. Uh, but how would I... Uh, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the, um, in the community is that we have to help our doctors. Our doctors, unfortunately, are not adequately trained. And, and, and they aren't necessarily going to be capable of providing us with the level of care that we need unless we help them, right? And, and we've done some stuff at TIC Bootcamp where we've created a TIC By Blueprint. And we've put a number of different resources in the TIC By Blueprint that we encourage people to bring with them to their doctor. One of the things that we're also going to encourage them to do in the future is to bring their Igenix um, requisition form with them so that they can now also help their doctors to define what type of testing they should be doing. So, study how would we, you know, in on on a very, you know, in a very broad way, uh, look at the at the testing that's available and help our doctors with defining what kind of test we would want as a threshold level after being bitten by a tick? And Matt will talk to you about about people who are um, who are suffering from chronic Lyme disease. But I'm I'm the guy mm-hmm. who's walking in after a tick bite. What? Yeah. Um, what panels do you think I'd want to look at myself, so that I can discuss them with my doctor?
1: So, um, admittedly, yes, this requisition form can be really o- overwhelming when you first look at it, and that is something we recognize. And we've been trying to make it simpler. And it's just, it's, it's actually one of those things that's very difficult for us to do because we're trying to please all the doctors as well with the different. Um, uh with the different combinations that they want in panels to order for their patients and so we want to be able to provide um what's most beneficial for the community and it just turns out that everybody wants something different go figure it's like a <laughs> Baskin Robbins for <laughs> the flavors but um i would say that um when you when you f- first look at the requisition form. And as a patient, because honestly, patients are the main advocates. They advocate for themselves. It's hard to find that support unless you're looking at a Lyme literate doctor who believes in chronic Lyme, then it's really, you know, it, it's a struggle. It's an uphill battle. And so we have a really good customer service team They're just sitting behind me. And um, they answer these questions all day long. And they're basically Someone will call in and say, I want to do the Lyme disease test. What do I do? And the first thing we'll ask them is, is it just Lyme disease or are you looking at other tick-borne diseases? Honestly, if you're just, if you only know of Lyme, it's worth considering the other ones. If you have no idea where to start, one of the things I like to tell patients is to do our symptom checker. So the symptom checker is on the website. It's under resources. It's pretty intuitive. It was uh, developed by an LLMD in collaboration with our team over here. And it's, uh, it'll, it'll send you an email after once you've done it telling you which diseases to focus on. Just remember if you see Lyme or tick-borne relaxing fever consider the other one as well. And you can call back and let us know, hey, these diseases came up and we'll tell you which tests are available um, that cover those diseases or which panels are available. So panels are just, I really like our tick-borne disease panels because they combine everything and it's just different, um, uh, different intensity or complexity of testing depending on which tick-borne disease panel you choose. And then we've introduced some for New York residents as well because the New York State Health Department is quite strict and so it's hard to get approval for all the testing and not everyone can go out of state. So we've introduced tests that are approved by the New York State Department of Health uh, that combine all the diseases as well. This way everyone is able to get um, good testing. Yeah.
0: A couple of follow-up questions on, you just gave us a ton of great information there, but I want to dissect it a little bit more. So we noticed on your website that you have almost 100 different tests available between individual tests and combination tests. But you also break it down based on region, what tests are available in certain states of America. And where we live in New York, it told us that we have 56 tests available and 42 are not. So what are those rules and regulations being enforced by the states that are not allowing certain tests that you offer to be available to us as patients in New York state or other states, for example?
1: Okay, so it's only New York. Everything is available everywhere except New York. Um, And (laughs) yeah. Unfortunately, and so this, um, we've just come up, we've just launched that test directory that you're referring to where you see those numbers. It's not as scary as that, because it's really just within the panel, it's like one or two tests, so they're not available. So for example, uh, Babesia-Duncani, it's believed to be only a West Coast disease. So we haven't put it through for approval to the New York State Health Department because we know it's not gonna get through. And even though there has been evidence to show that it's found
0: everywhere in the US. Like, we don't travel, right? I mean, New Yorkers don't leave the state ever either. So, I mean, come on, you know.
1: Recently, we had a patient call who said her doctor said the ticks die off when they get to a certain state. (laughs) I was like, that's really interesting. Wow.
0: (laughs) If only, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or or they need a visa or a passport to travel. (laughs) I don't know. It's crazy.
0: So that makes sense though. So really it's not as overwhelming or scary as it seems because a lot of those tests that aren't available or are just combinations of the same tests over and over again. So there still is a wide variety of tests available for New Yorkers that are seeing those numbers on your website is what you're telling us to be, right?
1: Exactly. So you may not be able to the Bartonella immunoblot, but I think that is something we eventually want to try and get um, approval for. But even though that's not available right now, there's still Bartonella Hensley and the Bartonella PCR that patients from New York state can, can do.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit, because I know there are so many commonly known tick-borne illnesses like Babesia, like gyneplasma, like Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, et cetera. But there are some other less known co-infections or, or infections in general that we can get from ticks. So -hmm. what things you test for as well, that are less talked about or less commonly known that are also as debilitating as Lyme disease and some other well-known co-infections.
1: So actually Barconella is one of those. And there is a lot of evidence for neurological symptoms. And um, we get a lot of calls in saying, hey, I think I've got Bartonella. What is that? And uh, there is a debate, like people don't know if Bartonella is caused by ticks or if it's caused just by flies or, you know, uh, something your cat's carrying. Or So Bartonella is one of those. Rickettsia is pretty commonly You know, people call and they don't know anything about rickettsia. And then as soon as you say Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, it's like, oh. So, um, what else that we test for? I'd say Ehrlichia is pretty uncommon as well, and Anaplasma, and those are all pet related as well. So it's worth like if you have pets, always be careful. Check them as well, as well as yourself if you've gone out anywhere. Honestly, not just the woods.
0: When you say pet related, though, like I know that people, you know, there's, it's out there that if you get scratched by your cat, you can get Bartonella, which is cat scratch fever, right? There are things like that. So when you say pet related, do you mean that pets will bring in ticks that will then infect the human? Or do you mean that pets are able to actually give diseases to, to humans in the home? Like, what do you mean by that?
1: I don't know if pets are able to give diseases to the humans. Maybe they are, but um, they can be carrying the ticks. They can also get infected themselves. So I know dogs can get infected by Ehrlichia. And they need to get tested. There's labs that do testing exclusively for animals. It's yeah. So more, more on that, um, on that aspect.
0: And I think, you know, one of the things you point out on your website is 25% of people are infected with more than just Lyme disease. And there are other co-infections as well. And I think we're starting to see that that number becomes higher as we get more sensitive and accurate testing, like hygienics. The more people test with better testing we're realizing that, oh my goodness, that number could be as high as 50% or maybe even higher. We have, we have one friend that we've made through our podcast who knew she had Lyme disease and for years, she kept testing negative for a lot of other things. She finally did a test through hygienics through, through Dr. Casey Kelly out of Chicago. And now she knows she has Lyme. She has a European strain and she has the American strain. She has Babesia, she has Bartonella, she has relapsing fever. So I think a lot of people think they just have Lyme, but there's a lot of other things brewing that they just don't know about because testing is just as an accurate for those co-infections as it is for Lyme disease through standard labs. So um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that number could possibly be higher than 25% even?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think also there's not a lot known about the spread of disease. And so by limiting your geographic region and saying, no, it doesn't exist here, you're also limiting what um, could you could possibly be infected with. And I think for doctors, it's important, you know, they it's good for especially the the ones who are pro-chronic Lyme and know how to treat people with tick-borne diseases. It's important to know what you're carrying because. It matters what disease you test for you, you treat for first and how it affects you subsequently. You know, I've heard that if you've got Babesia and Lyme, it's important to test, to treat Babesia first, only then you can successfully treat the Lyme disease.
0: So So, yeah, yeah, we hear this all the time, Study, where people get a diagnosis with one tick borne illness. They treat and they spend a ton of money. They see the world's leading Lyme doctor and they don't get better. Then they do better testing or or clinically they get diagnosed with a co-infection. They treat that as well. And all of a sudden it, it unlocks that door to healing, right? So I mm-hmm. think it's an important factor when people are considering the financial impact of, of a test like Igenix. Well, you could be going down the wrong road and spending a ton of money. I mean, we know people that have spent sixty dollars to $80,000 in mm-hmm. three to six months with a Lyme specialist, right? So money is a concern, but also you don't want to go down a road and be doing the wrong thing and spending, you know, much, much more than a test to figure out what's going on in your body. But on that note, you know, of finances as well. So Richard asked you about doctors and, and, you know, doctors trying to figure out this requisition form and identifying what tests to take and how it could be overwhelming. So many of us have Lyme litter doctors, but unfortunately they're out of pocket. So they're not covered by insurance. And again, finances are limited for many of us. So many of us find doctors who are covered by insurance, who are sort of either primary care doctors. In my case, I have a neurologist who are traditional Western doctors, but are open-minded to tick-borne illness and chronic persistent infections. For those doctors who are interested and willing to learn that we've been able to find, like myself, are you able to speak to them? Does your customer support team speak with doctors to help guide them and educate them to help all of their patients in general? So if somebody's listening and saying, I have a really good doctor covered by insurance, they just don't know enough about tick-borne illness, can they call your customer support and get help?
1: Yes, they definitely can. And we actually, our lab manager, is is technically trained and is very, very knowledgeable. And if it's something that's beyond our customer service department, then she helps us. So she will, will 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 transfer it to her and she will then speak to the doctors, especially new doctors who don't know where to start or how to go about this and want to be there for their patients and be able to learn more.
0: So Studi, I wanna geek out a little bit with you. So there's a, for those that, that aren't, aren't, pretty much everybody watching right now can't see us obviously, but there's a giant sign behind you, an Igenix banner, and it says immunoblots are a cut above, right? And I've been thinking about that the whole time since we started. So (laughs) what is an immunoblot, right? I mean, look, we hear about all these things. We hear about PCR, we hear about ELISA, we hear about, you know, IFA testing. We hear about all these different types of testing methodologies. And now we introduce an immunoblot. It's hard to keep up and understand what all these things mean, but clearly the immunoblot blot is probably one of the most cutting edge tests that we have available to the, to the public. So talk to us a little bit more about what is an immunoblot, blot? How is it different than a traditional Western blot? And why you're having so much success with it at, at Igenics.
1: So you know this, our immunoblot is exclusively an Igenics test. And it's um, basically as a replacement to the Western blots that we have out there. And it's what i was telling richard earlier it's like doing seven or eight western blots in one test you're covering a wide range of species you're not just looking at american species Um, you're looking at um, species from asia europe around the world because honestly tick-borne diseases are everywhere just because you're in australia doesn't mean you don't have tick-borne diseases (laughs) as much as they'd like to say so (laughs) and um same thing canada and It's just a way to more accurately detect antibodies against these diseases. So it is an antibody test. It's an indirect test and it's using recombinant proteins, which makes it highly specific and sensitive.
0: Okay. So when you say direct versus indirect, a direct test would be like a PCR test looking for the actual genetic makeup of the bacteria or virus itself. And then an indirect test is an antibody test looking for an immune response to the pathogen, correct? Correct. So the Western blot is an indirect test and the immunoblot is a superior improvement based on basically a test. I think was created, what, 1994 that we're still using today, mainstream. And now you have the immunoblot that is now superior and being used in your lab, correct? Correct. Okay. So, and then you mentioned it uses this recombinant protein to detect Lyme IgG and IgMs. What does that mean to use recombinant proteins? I don't really know what that means, to be honest.
1: So I'm not very well versed on that either because it's more technical, but I know it just makes the blot cleaner and it's, um, you're, you're more specifically targeting um, proteins that are um, significant to Lyme disease or to tick-borne relapsing fever or to Bartonella.
0: So as a follow-up, I do know that you're, I mean, we've studied you a lot, of course, in preparation for this interview, that your immunoblot is 93% sensitive compared to the traditional two-tier testing, the least and the Western blot, which is only 57.6% sensitive. So obviously there's a, there's a major improvement there because of this specific testing. But, you know, when, you, when we hear things like this and we hear about all these different strains and it's more broad, right? One of the things that Rich and I always bounce around with our guests is we hear these terms all the time, like, you know, species. And strains and strands. So are you able to uh, help us identify? Because like one of the things you mentioned on your website is Brellier, sensu sensulato. So what is that? Is that a strain? Is that a strand? Is that a is that a species? You know, help us understand what those, those words mean so we can better understand testing and the different pathogens that exist in our body potentially.
1: So I'll help you best understand it as I know it. Um, I could also be a little bit off on this, but the way it's been explained to me is that Borrelia burgdorferi lato it's a group of species of Borrelia that causes Lyme disease. And it doesn't, so Borrelia burgdorferi uh, sensu stricto is a Borrelia burgdorferi group that just includes Borrelia burgdorferi B31 and 297. And lato includes sensu stricto plus other species. So like Borrelia apseli, Borrelia um, Bor- Borrelia schomani, so all these mayoni, all these other species that cause Lyme disease as well.
0: So in a nutshell, this Borrelia burgdorferi sensu latus testing, which is the immunobot test, is a high-level grouping of many, I'll call it micro-targeted species of, and I'm probably not using the right word with species, but micro, you know, specific types of Lyme disease so you're going to catch more because it's a higher level classification that looks at a wide variety of different types of Lyme disease. What you're saying, I believe, right? So
1: it's not different types of Lyme disease. Lyme disease is Lyme disease. That's just the name of the disease. But um, it's the for some reason the naming is not the best. Was it the nomenclature? So no. um, Borrelia big, the, it's it's known as the Borrelia burgdorferi group. Yet you have a species called Borrelia burgdorferi B31, and then to Borrelia burgdorferi 297. But within that Borrelia burgdorferi group, you also can have Borrelia epicelli. For example, that's a European species that can cause Lyme disease. So you could be bitten with a tick and you'll find out that's a specific species that tick was carrying. And so you have more of an idea of where it came from in the world.
0: Thank you. That, that actually cleared it up for me because I Clearly didn't understand it. So thank you, Study, for for me. Oh, right. it's, it's
1: taken me a while to get, wrap my head around that as well. And I'm sure there are more, there are doctors and more, and scientists who can better explain that.
0: So, so beyond, you know, the immunoblot and PCR and Western blot and things that we're very familiar with, you mentioned on your website, you do have things like this IGX spot and fish testing as well, which I think is different. So at mm-hmm. a high level, can you just explain why do you do testing like that? when the immunoblot seems like it's the superstar, the rock star testing, why do you also offer these other types of tests beyond the immunoblot?
1: So the immunoblot is an antibody test. You're not, some people are seronegative where they don't produce antibodies. And I believe that's around 20% of patients. So you want to offer a variety of testing. So everybody has access and um, the PCR is again, a direct test, but they're not always the most sensitive because you're not always getting the um, you're, you're not always going to capture the disease in the sample that you have. You don't, you don't know. So if you get a negative test, it doesn't necessarily mean you're negative, but if you get a positive test, I mean, that's a little more certain because it's a direct test. Um, whereas fish testing is looking at the RNA. So the ribosomal um, DNA, and uh, that's, it's, it's just a different type of direct test, but it's also really good. And we offer that for Babesia and Bartonella, and it's pretty popular. And it looks, it's on a genus level. So you're not just looking, you're not looking at specific species. You're looking at Babesia as a whole, or Bartonella as a whole. And, um, and then you've, and then the other test, the IGX spot is what, the other one you mentioned. We offer that for a Lyme and, uh and Bartonella. And it's uh, similar to the Ellispot. I don't know if you've heard of the Ellispot is something they, that's been available as well. It's, it's pretty similar to that, except this is one we've uh, developed in-house. And that looks at your T cells. So those are the first cells that are, um, or, yeah, the first reaction that the body has when you're infected. And so it's good for really, really early detection usually within the first week of being bitten, whereas immunoblots wouldn't quite cover that. You still have to wait for your antibodies to develop for an immunoblot to to detect um, your antibody levels. Whereas with a T cell test, actually up to the first month, a T cell test would be pretty good. And then it's also very good for long-term, like chronic Lyme disease as well, or chronic Bartonella. So that
0: was, really helpful. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that there's no one, just like with, just like with treating Lyme disease, there's no magic cure, one pill treatment for Lyme disease. There's no one perfect test right now for Lyme disease. So that's why you have to offer so many because the immunoblot is an amazing test, but I never knew that 20% of people that are suffering from Lyme disease will never show an immune response on a test and therefore not test positive is what you said. Correct.
1: That's what I've heard. Around 20% of um, people don't produce antibodies. So they're known as seronegative.
0: And that's why you need a PCR test or a FISH test. or So with, whether you're looking for the DNA or the RNA, other means to find the bacteria in our bodies to have a positive diagnosis for Lyme patients. Correct. So one of the things that you were talking about, with Richard, I want to bounce back to also, is you kept referring to this anti-antibiotic challenge that doctors will do. So can you give us a little more detail? Because we're always looking for ways to provide hacks or tips to people that are suffering from chronic Lyme. And many of us don't have a actual definitive test, only clinical. And, you know, we've heard people tell us that they'll actually take antibiotics before they test. We've had people tell us that they're going in infrared sauna before they test because it'll help them activate the toxins and, you know, bring everything out into their bloodstream. You know, all kinds of cool things to, to make themselves more likely to test positive. And actually show an accurate result when they get their testing because it is so expensive. So, what do you mean when you say an antibiotic challenge that pe- that doctors will do with their patients when they do a test? What does that mean?
1: So, an antibiotic challenge is it's not something that we recommend or tell people to do since again we are a lab, so we can't you know say hey you should go do an antibiotic challenge. We don't know what doctors specifically want the patients to do. Um, however, some doctors do believe that if you um, What's what's the word?
0: Provoke Uh, almost. Yeah, (laughs) provoke. Yes.
1: If you provoke the disease with some antibiotics, that it's gonna drain out into the urine. And so that's where it's gonna be expelled. And so if you test the urine, then you're more likely to detect the disease.
0: So I think. I spent a lot of time geeking out on your website. And I, I know we talk about that on one hand, it's overwhelming, but doctors like to get combinations. So you kind of want to you, you strike that balance of what doctors want, but also making it not overly complicated. But what I really like about your new tick-borne disease test directory on your website is you can actually click into each specific test, right? So talk to us about why you felt that was important to share with people where they can actually see every single test you offer. And click into it and get specific details about every type of test, whether it's the PCR, the immunoblot, the IVX spot, a fish testing, whatever it is, you can actually drill in and get that level of detail. What, what motivated you guys to put that on your website to educate the Lyme community so they can make a better informed decision when filling out that, that requisition form for their test?
1: So we we get a lot of feedback through the conversations we have on the phone with our patients, with our doctors. And most of the time it's, I cannot go through this test requisition form. It's it's too overwhelming, (laughs) like, can you help me? And so we understand that people process information in different ways. And especially in the Lyme community, you're already feeling like your head is foggy. um, Everything's a little slower at times. And especially when you're feeling really symptomatic, the last thing you wanna do is be able to process all this information. And so the test directory just gives you a different way to go through it and go through it a little slower maybe and offer you, yeah, different options on how to figure out what you need or what questions you wanna ask and how to show it to your doctor maybe or how, or a way for new doctors or even experienced doctors to go through our information. Just another variety, a different way. And it's actually been really useful for us as well (laughs) in-house.
0: Yeah, I think think something we've learned after interviewing almost 250 people is that when you arm yourself with information and knowledge, you're more likely to heal because you better understand it. So you're arming patients to learn in an easy manner so they can make themselves more likely to heal and overcome this disease. So that's why for me, it was so cool to see that you put this out there. And I don't remember seeing that when I looked at your website like last year, for example. So thank you for spending the time to put that together for us patients to be able to learn from your website.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we appreciate that.
0: So, you know, another cool part of your website that I really liked is your Igenics Advantage. And you touched on this with Rich a little bit, your Igenics Advantage is, but what I really liked about what you talk about there is that you look for more, you look for more and detect more, no matter when you were exposed. And for me, that keyword when really stuck with me when I read that statement, right? Because so many of us are told we've been sick for years. I mean, we've, we've heard this countless times. I've been sick for years. I finally tested positive for Lyme disease but I was IgM positive and my primary care doctor is telling me it's a recent infection and there's no way it's connected to my, my symptoms for the past several years. So what do you think about that? Right? Because it's it's such a confusing topic when you finally get a diagnosis and you think you have Lyme, but now you're being told there's no way it can be a past infection. There's no way it's been in you for years because you're IgM positive only. What are your thoughts about that?
1: So one of the things to remember is you can get bitten more than, more than once. And you know, it can happen at any time. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. Uh, You know, it's more likely to happen if you're an outdoorsy person, but it's possible for anyone to get bitten. So when we say you can, we detect at any any time, whether you had um, a tick-borne disease is referring to our variety of testing because they're all looking at something different. And there's a graph as well. I don't, I think, I believe it's on the website somewhere. Um, that helps you see where where in the spectrum you might be. So for example, T cell testing, the IGX spot looks at really early detection or really late stage detection. And so that's going to be more like an upside down bell curve where it's going to be detected early stage and late stage. And then you've got your immunoblots antibody testing, which is really in the middle of the disease because you're looking at how your antibodies are reacting to infection. And IgM, for example, looks at recent acute exposure and IgG looks at long-term chronic exposure or past exposure, but IgM can also be reactivated in the long-term. So
0: it's Dude, important- Can you say it again? Because I just, I wanna make sure that I understand correctly. So IgM can so- it's IgM impossible. can be
1: reactivated in the long-term. Oh, okay. So it's important so- to test for, to do both when you're testing.
0: But do you mean by that study that I can I could have been bitten by a tick a year ago, been sick for a year and tested positive for IgM because it was reactivated from a tick by the year ago? Is that what you mean?
1: Um, either you've been re-bitten or you just haven't converted yet gotcha. to IgG. And that's possible. That's, you know, we we see that that is more technical than what I'm, you know, I can answer, but it is something we come, we come you know, we come across all the time where people say, oh, I think I should just do the IgG because... Uh, it's, it's, I got bitten a year ago or it's a past infection
0: and. But know. IgMs can last for quite a while longer than one would yeah. think basically. Okay.
1: Exactly.
0: So, but, but conversely, right. So people, people with active symptoms get tested by their doctors and they test IgG positive and not IgM. And their doctors interpret that in some cases, that IgG means a past infection. And therefore it's no longer active. So how would you respond to that? Is that accurate?
1: No, I wouldn't say that's accurate, but again, the doctor probably, I have, you know, I'm not medically qualified. So a doctor would know more than I do. Uh, personally, maybe, I don't think- Not that... those
0: doctors though, Studi. I'm just going to jump in. I'll say not those doctors. Okay.
1: <laughs> personally, I feel like if if your IgG is showing up really early on, maybe you've just converted quickly to IgG or, or you've had it for a longer time than, you know, than they think. Or if you got bitten, maybe it's a reinfection. You've been bitten again.
0: But you I mean, can show can
1: so many different possibilities,
0: but you can be IgG positive and still be sick. It doesn't mean that you're over yeah. the infection, right? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Cause that's, that's what we've heard some doctors say that if you have IgG, you're still, you're not sick anymore. You're over the infection, which is like mind blowing to hear that. So that's why that was the question, <laughs> you know, that, that, that makes us shake our heads when we hear that on this podcast. So, so as a like, follow- I
1: can, I can, I can tell you right now, I have Bartonella, for example, but the, my IgG still shows up, but I'm still symptomatic even after treatment.
0: Exactly. So your IgG is still positive and you're still symptomatic because you're still sick from it. It doesn't mean that you're over it essentially, correct? Correct. Correct. So you did talk about study also that there are different stages of different tick-borne illnesses. And on your website, you break it down to early disease and late disease. And on the same tick-borne disease test directory, you then filter your testing based on whether you suspect you have an early disease or a late disease. So give us a little bit more detail. You kind of talked about it already, but what testing specifically is good for late disease versus early disease?
1: So early disease most likely would be your... Uh, your IGX spot that's like within the first month and then immunoblots are all the time it's a good test to do at any stage and um PCRs if your immunoblots I mean PCRs and immunoblots should be done in conjunction because you don't know whether you're seronegative or not and um hmm, I'm trying to think what was another test Fish testing varies. That's because it's just for Babesia and Bartonella. And so, and you're looking at the RNA. So, uh, again, that can be at any stage as well. But really, IGX spot is right at the beginning and um, immunoblots the rest of the time.
0: So, today I want you to brag a little bit and I can tell already you're very <laughs> humble and you don't want to brag. So I'm going to help you brag a little bit about this because People that are listening and thinking, well, how good is iGenics? What have they accomplished, right? I mean, you know, you, you talk about on your website that you arm your scientists with the most cutting edge technology available. And when you hear that, it sounds like it's a marketing term, but then you give substance to that, right? And we've talked a little bit about this offline. We've, we've had discussions with other people about this. I mean, you were the first to introduce a relapse and fever Western blot test. Before anybody else in the world, right, you were the first to introduce comprehensive Lyme immunoblots and tick-borne relapsing fever immunoblot tests in the world, which is the most accurate testing in the world. So, you know, again, nothing is better. We're using technology from 1994 when we do it through LabCorp or Quest, right? So that just shows that you're focusing primarily on tick-borne diseases and therefore coming up with the best testing using the most current science, not antiquated decades-old science, correct? So is there anything else you can add to that that kind of give us, some, you know, some... Assurances about how accurate and good your lab is, as far as being able to develop new tests and constantly improve for the community.
1: Correct. So, thank you. But um, so, what happens is we test exclusively for tick-borne diseases and COVID now as well, obviously, because we want to we want to help the community. We want to help in the fight against COVID. We have the technology to be able to do so. So we have been. Um, but. Our main focus is tick-borne diseases, that's what we specialize in. It started off just with Lyme and it's always been important to us that it's in-house, that we're developing everything here. Uh, It's available to us so that we're able to help people easily, we're able to improve on what we have and we're not just buying kits from other places and making a standardized operation here. It's very much how do we improve on this test to better serve the Lyme community to help our doctors um, diagnose and treat their patients better. And so uh, we have a research and development team and their main focus is this. This is what they do all day long is working on how do we make our PCR better? How do, what, what's a new test we can introduce that would, um, that would just be, again, better for testing. So for lack of a better uh, word.
0: Um, but clearly, I mean, look, you're, you're reacting and moving with society. So you're keeping up with the board and listen, then COVID hits and you react immediately. And now you're helping with the pandemic. I mean, you've been helping with the pandemic for quite some time, obviously, but, but I guess I, I do, I, I want to quickly ask you a question about that because, you know, you can get a, and obviously rapid testing is not great for COVID and obviously the PCR testing is still not perfect either, but. What's different about your COVID test and compared to if I went to down the block, I went to the walk-in clinic and I got a rapid and a PCR test. How is yours better?
1: So we offer the PCR test. So the RT-PCR, which is available in other places as well. Our main, uh, our main competitive advantage is turnaround time. So we know that for COVID, it's really important you get results as quickly as you can. And uh, we have a same day program, so people can come in and do same day testing, and also 24 hour testing. But we also service a lot of assisted living facilities, schools, sports teams, and just people to be able to get on with their daily lives. And the local community over here as well, we're in Milpitas, California. So we've been working with the fire department and we help through there as well.
0: And there's there's clearly a huge overlap between the chronic Lyme community and now the COVID long haul community. We know many people that that are dealing either Are were dealing with chronic Lyme or were in remission from chronic Lyme and then got COVID and then either had Lyme reactivated or developed long COVID or who knows which which is really true, right? Was it reactivation of Lyme or was it long COVID or both? And I think we're still trying to understand what that means. But I think you're testing beyond, you know, the quick turnaround for an active present infection recently with, you know, right now with covid can you also help people look to see if they have antibodies to COVID or know if they've had COVID to see if that plays a role in activating their, their Lyme disease and making it worse potentially?
1: Yeah, so we've been using, we've basically taken our immunoblot technology and uh, developed COVID immunoblots. So people can see if they've had, if their IgG is positive, if they've had past COVID past COVID infection and they can do a PCR to see if they're cleared or not. And um, IgM sometimes can indicate it's still active, but it can also indicate um, that you you know you you have been uh, exposed to COVID.
0: So, a quick question that I think I mix, I missed a little bit earlier on is when we hear about Western blots and we hear about the immunoblot, we always hear about the word band, right? So, mm-hmm. there's bands for IgG and there's bands for IgM. And we hear, you know, we just watched a monster, you know, a, the, the monster inside me a documentary which is a movie that's gonna be coming out in May. And they talk about how in the nineties, the CDC actually removed bands from the Western blot. So less people would turn up positive because they couldn't deal with the crisis of chronic Lyme disease at the time. And it was really interesting to listen to and hear, but if you just first quickly, can you give us an, what is a band on your website, you refer to it as a band dash KDA, which is also known as a protein. So what does that mean? When you're looking for these IgG, which is a past, you know, infection generally, or an IgM, which is an active infection generally. What, what what is a band, and why do you look for them to be able to determine if they have an infection or not?
1: So KDA stands for like kilodalton, and basically um, bands uh, bands are like protein bands, so they have different weights. And when you're looking at the bands, some are significant to Lyme disease, some aren't, but they're still included because. You could, you could have other bands, you could have other infections affecting, affecting you. So um, when we're looking at our immunoblots or even the Western blots, you're looking to see if you have two or more of these significant bands, because these bands indicate whether you've had exposure to Lyme or not. Whereas the CDC looks at five bands, we look at two significant bands. And we also cover a wider range of bands that are significant to Lyme.
0: So I think I think you answered my follow-up question because I did notice looking at your website that the CDC actually looks for more IgG bands than your Immunoblot test, which I'm like, wait a second, I thought your test was better. But your your response to that is, well, we look for less bands for IgG because we're looking for more specific bands that mean these are Lyme disease bands, not the non-specific ones that the CDC is looking for as well. Is that is that what you is that what your answer was?
1: Correct. So the the CDC, for example, is they've got several bands there but they require more of them to be positive to, to say that, that you've been exposed.
0: But on the flip side, your IgM testing has far more bands than the CDC. So, so why did you decide to go with that approach for, for IgM? But with IgG, you're looking for more specific, less bands in the CDC.
1: So it's, it's specific. So our specific bands for IgM and IgG are pretty similar it's uh, just the cdc that has less i'm not sure why they do actually <laughs> i don't, i don't know because they
0: removed them probably <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: i think they have a lot of other bands as well but just which ones are specific for Lyme? lime what they consider yeah
0: so we, i do want to i know we're, we're keeping you here but i have a couple of questions no i want to ask you from the community so we, we did a we did a, a very quick instagram poll we got an overwhelming amount of questions for you. So I'm just going to pick a couple of them and ask you a few questions from community members and just kind of uh, cite them if you don't mind. And wh- okay. you know, we kind of grouped them as well. One of the most common questions we got, so I'll just kind of read the first one, that, that this is from a, a apocalypse.meow, which is a very awesome <laughs> Instagram handle, it's got to say that. Okay. But she said that her, her MD refused to treat Lyme disease based on a positive hygienics test because she had a negative CDC test. So she said, what tips do you have for discussing this with her doctor to get her doctor to realize that just because she was negative on a CDC regular lab core test doesn't, you know, doesn't mean that the positive hygienics test is now null and void.
1: So if um, if their doctor is pretty open-minded and willing to learn about our testing or speak to our lab manager or lab director, that would be great. Um, and they could talk them through, you know, what test was done, why it's positive, what. Um, instead of just dismissing it, we get a lot of patients who call in and say, oh, my doctor said you guys are quacks. Like we, (laughs) we, we don't believe in, you know, they don't believe in your testing. And it's usually because of the controversy surrounding Lyme disease testing and whether you believe in chronic Lyme or not, whether you're following old CDC guidelines, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, for example, Really recommends following the CDC guidelines and is pretty anti chronic line And so a lot of doctors will follow what, um, whatever is set by the Infectious Diseases Society of America.
0: So there was, you know, a lot of people. So, our, actually, one of our good friends, Ashley Marble, who we interviewed about a year and a half ago, she asked the same question How do you get regular doctors to recognize hygienics? Which you answered. Then- um, I- Sorry. Uh, Good.
1: I, I do have a follow-up to that. So a specific way to do that instead of just speaking to our lab manager and lab director is also to refer to the articles. And we have a lot of journal, uh, papers that have been written on our website. So under resources, again, um, there is material there that they can refer to and they can, you know, give it to their doctor. So it's under the knowledge center.
0: So I love that study because I think there are more open-minded doctors than we like to believe. And I happen to have one where with other things, I will bring him information that I'm learning and studying and, and, and absor- you know, absorbing. He'll learn with me and we grow together and we improve my health together. And he can improve his other patients because of, the, of how we're learning and growing together with, with tick-borne illness, which is so still controversial and a lot unknown there, right? So if patients educate themselves and go to your resources tab on your website and to your, your knowledge center, they can learn, share those resources and help their doctors that aren't necessarily a believer because of you know learning yeah. what the IDSA says, this can help them have real hard science to back up your testing, to have faith in it to give them a diagnosis.
1: That's correct. That's amazing for you as well. You're very lucky that you have a doctor that's so open-minded. I know a lot of people are not as lucky, but I, I think I agree with you. I think there there are a lot of doctors out there who would be willing to look at this information and deduce for themselves whether um they can help their patients or not or and if they don't believe what they're reading then they you know they can come back with why and but at least it's a more um it's a better argument than no we just don't believe in that
0: yeah i think one of the tips that i've learned to help uh, help doctors and just people in the community is when you reference dot gov studies that are backed by the federal government or backed by major universities like Duke University or Tulane University, when you bring them those studies that have hard evidence-based scientific studies, it's very difficult to refute them because these studies are being done. They're just not publicly talked about as much as we'd like. So I think that's really an important tip is to find these studies that are, you know, National Institute of Health, NIH.gov studies bring them to your doctors, bring studies from these major universities that are studying tick-borne illnesses, bring them to your doctors. And then if they're open-minded, they're gonna, I think, hopefully read them and be able to work with you. And, and if not, there are many other doctors that people can look for. But this question was also asked by at Fatima uh, Arujo, 79, and you answered the question about why, what to do if a doctor won't recognize eugenics as being a positive test. Same thing for at Jose Ella, and I'm horrible with names. I'm sorry, Jose, but Jose Ella Livieri. And he, same question about that and wanted to know if his doctor wanted to accept the CDC positive test, what can he do to help educate his doctor? And then the next question that came in though, Studi, is if CDC and Igenics are both negative, meaning the traditional lab core Quest, et cetera, testing is negative, and Igenics is negative after doing a pretty diverse wide set of Igenics testing, does that mean for sure that they don't have Lyme disease? Uh, uh,
1: I wouldn't be able to answer that because Lyme isn't just diagnosed based off of testing. Testing is just one of the tools. It's also your symptoms. Um, it's also your clinical history, and that's definitely where you go back to your doctor and see what to do next. Um, but maybe it's not Lyme disease. Maybe it's another tick-borne illness.
0: So this is from at Earl Avery Michael. So I think your answer is it possibly you don't have Lyme, but it's also possible you do and the testing just didn't show it, or it's possible you have another tick-borne illness because not everything is Lyme disease, basically.
1: Correct. So a lot of patients um, as well, when they call in, one of the things that um, that surprises them is you can have a different tick-borne illness and not have Lyme disease. It's called a co-infection, but it doesn't mean you have to have Lyme disease to have Borrelia or ehrlichia or Anaplasma.
0: And, you know, and I still use the word co-infection, but I, every time I say it, I hate it because it's not yeah. it, it's it's it implies you have to have Lyme to have these other things, and you don't have to have Lyme to have these other things, right? So I think that's something that we need to educate people about as well.
1: I agree.
0: So we have our our Rich and I have become very close with Debbie and Candice, who run two Alpha Gals, an amazing group about Alpha Gal syndrome from the Lone Star Tick. They want to know: do you have any Alpha Gal testing? And if not, do you plan on developing Alpha Gal tests and at any point in the future?
1: So I'm um I'm ashamed to say I've never heard of it. And uh, it's not something that I see as happening in the works yet. I hope so one day. But
0: I think um, it's much less it's much less prevalent, probably in California, where you are here on Long Island, especially in the northeast. It's it's a it's it's an allergy to red meat and a lot of other things as well. Like, you know, a lot of types of food and things like that from and you get it from a, a Lone Star tick. Um, but that was, that was something I think is becoming more and more known. And we've made observations that people that have a lot of food sensitivities that don't get better with Lyme disease when they get tested for alpha gal, they're finding out they're positive, especially here in the Northeast. So it's something that I think is another one of those things where you're sick, you're sick, you're not getting better, but you're treating Lyme. Well, are you testing for alpha gal? Because you could have that as well. You could have been bitten by a deer tick and a lone star tick because there's so many ticks around here, right? So it's yeah. something that I think a lot of people are starting to think about more and more, especially in the Northeast. And again, it and everywhere, I think it's just less prevalent, probably in California.
1: How do so you pronounce that again?
0: It's alpha-gal, A-L-P-H-A-G-A-L syndrome, alpha-gal syndrome.
1: Alpha-gal. Yeah. So it's um, it's also like mycoplasma. A lot of people ask us if we test for mycoplasma. We don't, but hopefully one day we will.
0: So another one is from Nadia by Nature. She wants to know which, te- if, which test should she get if she's had treatment from Lyme disease, never got better, she's been sick for quite a long time and wants to see if the infection's been cleared. Meaning, do you even have a test like that, right? I think the infection is cleared because I'm feeling better, but how do I know that I'm actually maybe in remission or maybe the infection is not active in my body?
1: So um, your antibody testing would show you whether your body is still fighting the infection. Um, It would be something you'd have to discuss with your doctor about. to see what they recommend. Uh, but we do know that antibody testing shows whether, you, you know, it's still acute, it's still reactivated, or if it's um, long-term chronic exposure, it's passed, or if it's just not there
0: anymore. So if you're right, if you do the traditional Western blot or the superior immuno blot and you test positive, that means you are still having an infection and therefore it's not passed, basically.
1: Not necessarily. So again, your symptoms come into play and your clinical history again. So it just, it depends on all those factors. It's so could just, you? It's, sorry, it's just so, it's okay. it's so difficult to say what each person should do because it's so um, it's so individualized. It's so specific for each person depending on what, what else they have going on, what else is going on with their bodies. Um, so it's hard to say. And that's why it's always something that a doctor would need to help with.
0: And we appreciate your honesty because we do know nothing about chronic Lyme disease is simple. And of course, testing is not simple for for Lyme disease, right? So there is no cut and dry answer, unfortunately, to a lot of these things. But I think the more information you provide us, the more we can arm ourselves with this knowledge and education, the better we can make educated decisions in our trial and error process to try to identify what's going on and feel better, which is what it's all about. We just want to feel better, right? I mean, so- You
1: just want to improve your quality of life. You've been hit with something, this tiny little nuisance that- you know, you didn't expect to just upend everything, cause you all this financial, physical, and emotional distress. I mean, it's
0: like my my you- final my final question before Rich picks back up that I want to ask you from our friend Krista. She wants to know, you know, parasites are becoming more and more popular discussion in the Lyme community as well. And we do know that obviously, but B. C. is a bloodborne parasite. We do know that you can get things like nematodes in your brain. We learned from Dr. Alan McDonald, which then kind of work hand in hand with Lyme to create brain inflammation and even cellular death and tissue death in your brain. But there are also intestinal parasites people develop and have many times with Lyme disease as well. So there's many different types of parasites. Do you offer any specific parasite testing beyond Babesia at No, just
1: Babesia.
0: And with, with the Babesia testing, it's I think important to note that although it's a bloodborne parasite, it's not if people, if people have Babesia and they don't know it and they're getting Lyme treatment, they're not going to get better, right? Because the treatment for Lyme disease is not going to work for Babesia, like possibly, you know, Anaplasma is going to work with some of the same treatment as, as Lyme disease as well, correct?
1: So that's what I've heard. I don't know for sure, but I, I have heard, um, and it's something I've read as well, that you do, Babesia is so tricky. Even Bartonella, they're really tricky to treat. And you have to get, you, you have to really go for those first and treat them first before you can tackle Lyme disease. And if you're treating for Lyme disease, I believe that you do end up treating Ehrlichia as well. I don't, don't quote me on that. Don't Again, that that would be the doctor treatment diagnosis. That's all the doctor's job. So yeah, testing, that would be us. <laughs>
2: So, Sid, you've been really generous with your time and, and, oh, and you. there are a couple of little areas I'd like to explore with you before we let you go. Sure. Uh, and the first is, what is the future for iGenics? Meaning what kinds of, uh, of, of testing are you focusing on? What kind of refinements are you focusing on? And what areas do you think uh, you'll be testing in, in the future?
1: So um, our goal is always to bring the latest and greatest <laughs> to, um, to everyone out there. And I believe uh, we are trying to develop our immunoblots for other diseases and also, um, and also improve upon testing that we do currently have, especially because we wanna be able to match our indirect and direct oh. testing to be just as effective as each other and not want to totally outweigh the other. So that way you're, you're, you're getting the best of the best when you do both types of tests.
2: So the last question I wanna ask you is what kind of patterns are you folks observing at Igenix? Meaning what are the changes that you're seeing from the, from the, um, the blood tests and the urine tests and the, and the other fluid tests that you're doing with regard to the number of co-infections, the number of people who are suffering from, the, uh, from diseases and are you seeing regional differences? And maybe you can take each of those three questions separately.
1: So in terms of um, patterns that we're seeing, it's been, it, it's difficult to tell right now because the past two years have been so COVID-centric. A lot of people haven't been going to their doctor's offices. So there's been a lot of suffering and silence. Um, uh, so the pattern-wise, patent, that's difficult to say right now. Um, it'll be more telling in the next few years. As far as... Um, I'm sorry. What was
2: your second question is, are you, are you seeing any, are you seeing any additional co-infection, for example, like in the past where you're seeing tests where people were largely just testing for Lyme and are you seeing a larger number of, I know the term you, Matt and I all hate this co-infection, but are you, are you seeing, uh, are you seeing a greater number of tests for these other pathogens uh, other than Lyme?
1: For example, in 2018, we saw more, more people who tested with us were positive for Babesia than for Lyme disease. So that's, you know, that was pretty eye-opening for us. It just shows you that it might not be Lyme disease. That's the most widespread disease out there. It could be tick-borne relapsing fever. I mean, I, I think that that's everywhere. <laughs> and um, so that's another one that I had in Lyme disease, but I've treated. So... <laughs> You know, it's very common to not just have one disease, to have um, uh, more than one. Uh, Two is very common. And then as as you get more, it gets less, um, less common.
2: And the last question I was asking you is about region. Are you seeing people from certain regions of the country suffering from different types of diseases or are you seeing the the same general sort of breakdown of disease uh, nationally?
1: So that's tricky because that depends on what people are testing for from different parts of the country and the world uh, and what they believe is in their area. Um, we're, we're definitely seeing a spike from the Midwest, for example. A lot of people, a lot more diseases are, are coming back positive in, in those areas. And, um, you know, it's not an area everyone people used to think carries tick-borne diseases, but now that's a growing, a growing tick-borne disease area. And North Carolina, Pennsylvania, California is a huge hotbed. And uh, up North in Canada, British Columbia and Vancouver Island, um, there are ticks all over Vancouver Island. And you'll have people saying, oh, but there's no such thing as tick-borne diseases in Canada. Um, so it just depends on where you are, honestly, and whether you think there's tick-borne diseases in your area or not.
2: So do you think it's the, the changes that you're seeing are really more a function of awareness generally from the patient community and awareness from the medical community? Or do you believe that the trends are, are developing more ticks and therefore more contact with ticks in other parts of this country and, I guess, Canada?
1: I think it's awareness is a huge, it's a huge thing. So if you're aware of what ticks carry and that it could be in your region and that, oh, just because you live somewhere, you're not going to, you know, you got bitten by a tick, but nothing's going to happen to you because you're safe in your area. Um, That's that's a huge part of it. And also, um, not just it's not just awareness, it's also what your health department, what messaging your health department puts out there. So, you know, your, your health department plays, different states' health, health, health departments play a big role in, um, in what they're looking for, what they expect. So we have to report positive, uh, positive cases to the health departments all over the country. And certain states health departments ask for only specific diseases. Uh, For example, Bartonella, I think only a couple of states will ask for positive cases of Bartonella, but that's all over over the US. And Lyme disease, it'll be like, no, we only want the antibody testing. We don't want to know about the PCR. And it's like, but that counts.
2: (laughs) Interesting. So Citi, we we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your really busy schedule to uh, introduce your wonderful lab to the Tick Bootcamp community. And uh, we can't thank you enough for the great work. So please extend our appreciation to Dr. Shah and all the good folks at Igenics for all the great work you're doing in the Lyme disease community.
1: I will do. And thank you so much for having me and everything you guys are doing, honestly. Just you you are doing the, the awareness part of this. Um, about... Uh, uh, bringing awareness to the community. And that's, that, for me, that's one of the most important parts because without that, people don't know.
0: Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Studi Vora. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Studi, please visit her on Instagram at lab. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you, as always, for listening.